Uh, before we begin, I'd like to uh, please turn with me to Ephesians. I'd like to say three things. Number one, Cliff and Leanne, thank you so much for coming and sharing. Um, I absolutely love your uh, emails and read every one of them. And I think I speak for a lot of people here. And I pray through your emails uh, very much. And I'm just thrilled to see what God is doing there through these mobile pastors. And it just thrills. I, I just want you to know how encouraging it is for us to hear of God working in a country that has been so hostile. And I think the persecution is really Satan not wanting to let go of the grip, but he's, he's losing it. He's losing his grip, and, and I'm very thankful. So thank you very much. Thanks for the letters. Thank you for taking the time to write them and to include us in this great ministry. It's wonderful. Secondly, I'd like to say to the youth here today, um, we've been, we started a new uh, youth group program, and uh, what we're trying to study, and, and this kind of goes out to the parents too, um, what we're trying to guide our youth through is um, basically we presented to them that Satan is in the long game with them and his goal is that they would perish. And so we started analyzing ways where he might use that and one of them of course is the internet. And as you know the internet is a very dangerous place for young people and so we're trying to prepare and train and help our young people. So young people tonight we're gonna be studying how Satan uses the internet to get you to compare yourself with other people and how that's actually contrary to what God would have us to do in scripture. So we're gonna talk about the internet, we're gonna talk about um, you and, uh, and, and how the Bible talks about how we should, you know, how we should resist this, this desire to compare each other. So please come out and uh, and that and you're, you're very welcome and if you've never been to youth group before please come it's kind of for junior high and high school and and uh, even early late elementary kids too so it's it's going to be very user friendly so I want to encourage you in that finally I want to say that um, I love Thanksgiving Thanksgiving is one of my very favorite holidays it's so simple and it it focuses on giving thanks to God um, but I'm not preaching on it, <laughs> okay? So I'm going to continue through our, our book of Ephesians, but it's not because of a lack of love for Thanksgiving. I, I normally do preach on that, but I didn't want to lose the, the, the flow that we have here uh, in the book of Ephesians. So if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read for us the passage that we're going to open up today, and then we're going to be flipping in our Bible. So keep your Bible ready, ready for action. And we're going to put some things on the screen as well. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Just follow along with me in your Bible as I read. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us, that we would understand your mind and, and your revealing of these truths to us. We recognize and we believe that as the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the Ephesian church, 
that your Holy Spirit was leading and guiding him to write your inerrant, infallible word, and that that word was not only meant for the Ephesian church, but it was meant for every church throughout the era of the new covenant. And so it's for our church. Help us, we pray. Help us to understand why these words were so important that you wanted, that you through the Holy Spirit has put them in, the, in your eternal word. Bless us. Be with us now, we pray. Help us, we ask. Even humble us, we pray, that we might be a people that would be pleasing to you in this area. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at our amazing identity that we have, the, our calling, who we actually are. And I reminded you that as we've been studying the book of Ephesians, these three chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, were all about this great identity of who we are in Christ Jesus. And now Paul is going to apply it. And so that's what he does in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He applies all that he has done. So we're going to keep going back to this rich theology in 1, 2, and 3 because it's so absolutely essential to understand how he's going to open it up. And so Paul, as we saw last week in verse 1 here of this passage, says that he wants us to walk worthy of the calling with which he has called us. He wants us to live out our life, to, to live our life in a way that, that matches this calling. And what's interesting is, is the first thing that Paul points to, like, like think about it. Paul says, you know, you're, you were called before the foundation of the world. God sent his own son to die for you. He's, he's given you an eternal inheritance. He's given you a down payment of the Holy Spirit. He's raised you from, the spiritual, from spiritual death to life. He's made you his family. He's made you his temple. All that stuff that we were looking at. It's amazing then Paul says, live a life worthy of this. But he doesn't begin where so many people tend to begin, which is, okay, be good, be moral, be holy, be sexually pure. He's going to get to all that, by the way. But that's not where he begins. He begins with unity. He begins with unity. And I think that he begins with unity because of the rich theology that he has given us. And so today, what we're going to look at, and if you noticed it in your bulletin, it's kind of strange, but it's the title of this sermon. And it's kind of strange, and it's probably not even grammatically correct, but I'm trying to make a point. And that title of this message really is how to keep the unity you are, not what you have, you are. And so we're going to look at this under three headings. Number one, the unity you are. Then secondly, the call to keep that unity. And then thirdly, how, Paul says, to keep that unity. And what we're going to do, actually, and sometimes I do this and I feel, I feel you know, should I do this or not? But I am going to do it in this text. And that is, I'm going to actually work the text backwards. You say, Todd, you think you're better than the Holy Spirit? No, I, I really don't. But what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm going to try to work the text backwards because I think that if we do that in one sense, it helps us to really grasp what he says at the beginning. Otherwise, we tend to, to almost miss that, okay? And so let's, let, me, let me explain to you, or let me show you what I mean by that. So if we look at this text, verses 1 through 6, uh, and let's begin with the first point, the unity that you are. Paul is going, he's building the fact that we should live united as the body of Christ. We should be united because of who we are, what God has done, and how that then applies. So look at verse 4. 
Verse 4, Paul begins with all of these ones, one, one. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's talking about this unity. Now, this is, in some ways, this section right here, these two verses, are a summary of some major theological themes that he opened up in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Turn with me back to chapter 1. Look at verse 4. Remember how he began by praising God in verse 3 for all that, that he has blessed us with in Christ Jesus. And then he begins in verse 4 with union with Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him. And there's this union that we have in Christ. And then the rest of the time he goes down through, and we study this in great detail, uh, verses 1 through 14, in him, in him, in Christ Jesus, in him, in him, in him, in union with Christ. He's going to open up then in chapter 4 that we are one body. He's already introduced that as, as you see at the end of chapter 1. Notice there where it says, which is the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are his body. And then he's going to go in chapter 5, we are his bride. The two have been made one, and we are his bride. And so Paul's dealing with this whole doctrine of our union with Christ. And that's where he's coming up with all of these ones. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But then he also has been opening up this idea that God's plan, God's plan is to unite all things into Christ, into one. Look at chapter 1 and verse 10. And this is all by way of reminding you of where we've been over the last year. Verse 10, it says this, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, chapter 1, verse 10, he might gather together in one. There's that unity. He might gather together in one. The Greek word means to gather under one head, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ Jesus, both which are in heaven and are on earth in him. Now notice here, Paul is one of those times where Paul just expands with this amazingly huge vision of the future of all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. He'll say in the book of Colossians, everything united in as one, one huge harmonious cosmos. That's what he sees here. And, and, and this is the goal of redemption. This is the goal of what God is doing. A beautiful, harmonious new heavens and new earth with Jesus as the king of all kings, the prince of peace reigning and harmony and every tribe and tongue, we're going to see everyone together. And what Paul is saying is, is that this whole union, this whole oneness, he wants to see lived out in the church right now. He wants to see. You see, the church is this precursor of this and that's what Paul is seeing here and that's why the church is to be a marvel a marvel even now to the principalities and powers remember chapter 3 and verse 10 to the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers this is why the church is to the glory of God remember chapter 3 and verse 20 to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations and so that's what Paul sees but then, remember also in chapter 2, what else Paul did? He talked about bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles as into one new humanity. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11. 
He says, remember you Gentiles are in the flesh. And then he talks about them being the uncircumcised by what's called the circumcised. They were, with, they were aliens of the commonwealth. They weren't citizens of the commonwealth. They were strangers to the covenants. They had no hope and without God. But then look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, union with Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he says, for he himself is our peace. Now notice again the theme of one. Who made both one, one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, have abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinance. Now, now, and then the climax comes at the end of verse 15. As to, so as to create in himself one new man. And remember, I gave you probably a better translation of that is one new humanity from the two, thus making peace. And notice verse 16, that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross. And then he goes on to talk about, look at verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And so this whole idea of bringing together all things into one, bringing together this new humanity in union with Christ, in union with one another because of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, and Christ bringing this whole humanity to God the Father. That's the image. That's the vision. That's the theology that Paul is laying down. And it has very practical impact for us right now. This new identity, which is us, actually transforms or in a sense, you could almost say negates other identities that the world is trying to, to have. Turn with me in your Bible. Just flip in your Bible uh, ahead to the book of Galatians. It's the book right before Ephesians. And look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. We looked at this verse last, uh, last week as well. But notice it again. Paul says this in verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized, remember, one baptism, into Christ, have put on Christ, union with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ. In other words, this new identity that you have as being this one new humanity in Christ, in union with Christ, subsumes, and, and, and in one sense, not completely, we're going to see in just the next section, the next passage, but in one sense, it negates these other identities. In fact, Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Those categories mean nothing anymore. There is neither slave nor free. Those socioeconomic categories, we use them as rich and poor. We use them as educated and uneducated. We use them as, as, as management and labor. We, none of that means anything anymore. In Christ Jesus, we're all one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, one, one. He says there's neither male, uh, male nor female. Gender, gender and decision and, and, and gender. That, that's, we're all one in Christ. Those things become subsumed. They, they, they almost in one sense are negated. You are all one, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. You are all one, one, one in union with Christ Jesus. And this is to be a vision of the world that is to come. Turn with me now to the book of Revelation. Easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible. 
And Cliff actually uh, referred to this passage. Cliff actually, when he was speaking, referred to this passage. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. We just studied the book of Revelation, and you remember these visions, these beautiful pictures, and how these things are portrayed. And here in, in, in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 9, John gets this picture of the new heavens, new earth, the final people of God, and, and, and there they are. And he says in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations. So he sees this vast multitude that is so big it can't be numbered. Lots of people. And he said, and they're from all nations. Now how does he know that? All tribes, all peoples, all tongues. He sees the diversity of these people. He sees their different dress. He sees their different skin color. He hears their different languages. He sees this huge, massive, uncountable, multifaceted people that represent all of the nations of the earth. And yet they're all clothed. In the, they're standing in the same place, clothed with the same clothing, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the fact that the elders and the, and the four living creatures that he saw, and that they're all, and they, they all start worshiping and praising God. And then John asked one of the elders, who are these? He said, these are the ones that came out of the great tribulation. These are the ones that have, that have been faithful to Christ throughout all the generations as the devil was persecuting, as, as we saw happening in Indonesia even today. And then notice what he says this. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits upon the throne will dwell among them and they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. And the sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water and God will wipe away every tear of their eye. Here they are. Here they are, the redeemed humanity, the one in Christ Jesus, the one people of God. And what Paul is trying to say, this is all theological background for what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 4. What Paul is saying is, this is beginning to happen now. This is, remember our eschatology? This is the overlapping of the ages. This is the breaking in of the future into the present now. God is now forming this people, and it is called the church. This great harmonious new heavens and earth that is coming is already beginning in the church. The future has broken in. The future has started. And in the church, in the church, people should taste, experience the hope and the joy and the unity of what it means to be one. You see, dear friends, the church is to be a preview of the final movie. The church is to be the trailer of the upcoming event. The church is to be, as, as Thanksgiving is coming, if somebody was making a special soup, and you went, oh, does that smell good? That smell good? Your wife said, and she says, here, take a taste, take a taste. And you say, oh, my, 
I can't wait for this meal, for that foretaste of what is to come. The church is to be the foretaste to the world of what is to come. The church is to be the model. The church is to be the proof. The church is to be the wonder of these people, this diverse group of people, of all, 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 all ethnic backgrounds, of, of all races, of all socioeconomic statuses, of all gender. All these people are to be together and united and in one and in harmony, and we're to be the wonder of the world and the wonder of the angels, and they should be in awe of God. That's what Paul means in 3.10 when he says that the principalities and powers are looking on, and they're seeing this church, and what is God doing? He's bringing all kinds of diverse people together, and they love one another, and they're united, and they have one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism, and one father, and they're united. Dear friends, think about it. In Western society right now, the, the, the secular world is desperately trying to pull this off, and they're miserably failing. We have deans of, of diversity and inclusion in colleges now. By the way, our colleges right now, the bastion of unity and peace and love and acceptance for one another, they're the very opposite. The secular world is failing miserably at this. They don't have any background to do that. But where this should be seen and should be experienced is in the one body, the body of Christ. Those people who are in union with Jesus and in union with one another as is his body. This is where this should be. And this is where the world should now be able to see it, to look in the church and see it. And that's why I've entitled this, The Unity That You Are. The Unity That We Are. This is who we are. And by the way, I just want to commend you as a church and praise God uh, for what God is doing in this place. We're a really diverse group of people. We are young and old. We are educated and we, we, are, we are people that have, that, that have limited education. Our education isn't, isn't in books. Our education is in is in what we can do with our hands. But the world thinks those people should be divided. We have people that have means and own businesses. We have people that punch clocks. But none of that means anything in here. Because we're the body of Christ and we love one another. And you, and you are a wonderful role model of that. So Paul tells us of the unity that we are. Verse 4. One body. One spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This is who you are. And so he's telling them to live this out, to keep this unity. So look at verse 3. This is why I told you I'm working backwards. Notice what he says in verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So he's telling them, again, let's, let's start at the beginning so we'll follow Paul's argument. He says, walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. Then he's going to tell them how to do it in verse 2. We're going to get to that soon. But then he says this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he shows them, this is who you are, this unity, one, Lord, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So let's, let's just focus just for a few minutes here on verse 3. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, basically, live out who you are. This is the idea. And he says, endeavor, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let's go word by word by that. Endeavor, 
endeavor. This is a great Greek word. The word actually means to hasten or to do something fast. That's, that's its root meaning. Do something fast. I want you to think in your head, not, not all of you know baseball and, and that, but just think about the guy's on third base. He's on third base. He's the winning run. There's only one out, and all of a sudden a ball gets hit all the way out to the outfield. Now, he knows that he's allowed to take off as soon as that ball gets caught. And as soon as that ball gets caught, he's going for home. But he knows that as soon as that ball gets caught, it's going to come flying into home too. And so he's ready, he's ready, he's ready for his coach to tell him. And if you watch these guys take off from third base, they're giving everything they got. They take off like they've been shot out of a cannon. And they're running like crazy. That's the word that Paul has chosen to use here. But then the word took on another meaning as it developed in the Greek language. And the meaning was this. To be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation, to be zealous, to be eager, to take pains, to make every effort. Listen to how some of the Bibles tried to translate this word. In the New King James, it's endeavoring. The NIV, make every effort. The ESV, eager to maintain. The Berean Bible, being diligent to keep. The contemporary English version, try your best. The New American Bible, striving to persevere. That's the word that Paul is using here. It, make, it, make it an effort. Go, go for it, go for it, go for it. Endeavor to keep, to keep. Endeavor to keep. The word keep there literally means to guard. It's used in Acts 12.5 of Peter being guarded in prison. It's used in Acts 16.23 when the Philippian jailer, having charged the jailer to keep them securely, he puts them in shackles in the inner prison. Keep. Paul is saying here, endeavor, work hard, run for it, hasten. To keep what? Your unity. Work hard to keep your unity. Don't just assume unity is going to happen. You have the unity. Now keep it. You are unified in Christ Jesus. Keep it. Endeavor. Work hard. Make effort to keep it. And he says it, and I love how he says it. He calls it the unity in the spirit. The unity of the spirit. Now he's already told them. Look at chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 and verse 13. He's already told them that they've been given the Holy Spirit. He says in 1.13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, you plural, who in the guarantee of our who is the guarantee of our inheritance and the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We have the Holy Spirit. Remember, then look at chapter 2 and verse 18. He said, through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And now he is telling us to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. And then he says this, in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. What he means by that is that this peace, this peace that we have and is supposed to prevail against us is to unite us. It's a powerful thing that, to un that unites us. And in fact, that's true. Churches that have known peace for a long period of time, like ours have, it's the kind of place where if somebody does try to come in and disrupt, we say, no, 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 we don't do that here. No, 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 we don't do that here. Now, Paul is saying, therefore, endeavor to keep this unity that you have and this unity that you are, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Then the, our third heading is this. Well, how does he tell us to do this? And that's what he gives us in verse 2. So you see, I did work backwards, but now we're going to work forwards. He says in verse 1, live out the calling, walk worthy of the calling which you were called. 
He wants us to endeavor to keep the body of this peace. He wants us, he, he tells us that we're unified, but notice how he tells us to do this. He says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Paul sort of paints a picture of how he wants us to act toward one another. And he's four words, right? He wants us, he says, first of all, lowliness. That's the word humility. It means to simply, it actually, the word actually means to have a lowly view or a mindset of yourself. A lowliness. It's somebody who has lowliness of mind. And Paul tells us in scripture that this is who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. In Philippians 2, chapter 3, he says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind... Here's the definition of it in one sense. Let each esteem others better than himself. See, this isn't somebody who has an exalted view of themselves. This is somebody who actually has a low view of themselves. They don't think that they're so important. They're so important. They're so right. They're a role model for the world. Their opinion must be broadcast and everybody must recognize and, and emulate them because they are the role model. It's the very opposite of that. Paul says that we're supposed to have lowly minds. We're to have lowliness of mind about ourselves and esteem others better than ourselves. Now think about this. This fits perfectly with chapters 1, 2, and 3 that focused on grace. Grace leads to lowliness. How? How does grace lead to lowliness? You see, dear friends, we should be constantly in awe that we're saved. How are you saved? You're saved by grace. You're saved by unmerited love. You have no right to salvation. You have no claim of salvation. You've done no works worthy of salvation. You have no accomplishments. I have no accomplishments that are worthy of salvation. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We needed to be made alive together in Christ, Ephesians 2. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were following the evil one. And we were following our lusts and our desires. And we needed to be made alive altogether again. I had to be saved through the execution of the very Son of God. The very Son of God's hands had to be nailed. Nailed. His feet nailed. He needed to be hanging, dying, the very son of God in order that somebody as miserable as me could get to heaven. Dear friends, if nothing makes you lowly of mind, that should. Grace should. Grace should. You say, yeah, but you were chosen. You're right, I was chosen before the foundation of the world. But guess what? If anything could be said, you and I were chosen because we would be really good examples of bad people getting saved. If there was anything in me that, that gave me the reason to be chosen, it was because I was so bad. I was so, the, to save me would be such an example to the glory of God of his grace. I was chosen because I was bad. I was chosen because a bad, wicked, evil person saved would glorify his mercy. You say, that's kind of harsh, Todd. Yeah, it is, but Paul said it about himself. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 1. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. And look at how Paul talks about his salvation. 
This is a famous passage because Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners, first of all sinners, protos, number one. Notice how he says this. 1 Timothy 1.12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer. That's because he hated the name of Jesus Christ, despised it, woke up every morning trying to stop that name from spreading. A persecutor and an insolent man. By the way, that, that word we don't use very much. He was an arrogant, nasty jerk. That's what he's saying here. An arrogant, not just a nasty jerk, not just a jerk, a nasty jerk. And an arrogant, nasty He was not only just a nasty jerk, he was an arrogant, nasty jerk. That's what insolent means. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Even the faith and love came from a union with Christ. Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, foremost, protos, number one. However, look at verse 16. For this reason, for what reason? Because I'm the worst. I was such a wicked man. Because of this, I obtained mercy. That in me, the chief, the protoss, Christ Jesus might show all long suffering. Remember that word, it's coming up next. As a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, look, what, look at what the chief of sinners saved by grace then does. He worships. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever and ever. I was chosen because I'm just so bad. I would be a perfect model of what grace could do. And dear ones, that's who we're to be. And we're to be lowly minded because of that. We're to be humbled because of that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, Peter says this, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. That's humility. And be clothed, be robed with humility. Put on humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he preached on this, said that's the same word that was used when Jesus wrapped a towel around him to wash feet. And he's wondering if Peter actually was thinking of that when he talked about how we should be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. No, dear friends, we are to be humble people. We are to be lowly-minded people, and that's how we will be united. Then notice the next one, and time is, is going on me, so I'll have to go quicker here. But notice the next one. He says in verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness. Gentleness. The word means gentle, meek. And gentle and meek doesn't mean weak. It actually means strength held back, strength that is focused on serving others. But it's to be gentle and meek to care for people in that way. And again, this is very much often mentioned in the scriptures. In the scriptures, it, it talks about how this is one of the fruit of the Spirit, this gentleness. The Apostle Paul modeled it himself in 2 Corinthians 10.1 when he says this, Now I, Paul, myself pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Who in presence am, there's our word lowly, lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. God, Paul was gentle. He was meek. He was tender with people. And that's what we're called to be. And of course, Jesus himself is our role model.
Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and here's our two words, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So notice in 4.2, Paul says that we should be with all lowliness and all gentleness. We should keep this unity. Then he says two more words, and I can only give them to you quickly. One is long-suffering. It's a great word. It's the word makra through mia in Greek, makra through mia. And, and makra is micro, uh, macro, I'm sorry, big, big. But the word means long too, long. Macro, and through mia is passion. And so macro through mia means long, 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 long time before passion eruption, erupts. Long suffering. Sometimes it's translating the Bible patient. It's one, that, it's one that goes long before he gets angry, long before he gets irritated. It's used of God. God is patient. God is slow to anger. If God wasn't patient or slow to anger, guess what? We wouldn't have church today because we'd all be in hell. But God is slow to anger. He is patient and long-suffering. One of the, comment, one of the lexicons says, it waits a long, long time before expressing anger. So then Paul says lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering and then finally bearing with one another in love. The word means to bear up, to endure, to stand strong. But here it means to put up with someone that which you're faced with who is difficult, annoying, or disagreeable. And the key here is love. See, parents love their children, and so they forbear with them. They bear with them long. The child asks the same question thousands of times, and the parent answers the question. The child wants to do something over and over again. How many times have you played that game? Uh, do it again, do it again, do it again. You, you forbear, you do it again. The child spills, you clean up, they spill, you clean up, they spill, you clean up. You forbear, you forbear, because you love them. And Paul is saying that we are to be forbearing with one another and caring for so let me conclude this by just applying this all to ourselves. There was a, a very good book that was written several years ago, and it was written on humility. And uh, the author began by saying, I preached this at my church, and when I was finished preaching on this humility, he said, a man came up to me and he said, I wish, I just, I'm visiting here this Sunday for the first time. He said, and, and I just came from a horrendous church split. And if people would have just taken this sermon and applied it there, the church would have never split. You see, dear friends, in so many places today, in so many churches today, there is so much spiritual immaturity. People are so untaught that rather than humility, they have pride. Rather than being gentle and meek, they're opinionated and self-centered. And they want to tell it like it is, whether you like it or not. Instead of being long-suffering, they're quick-tempered and short-fused, quick to be offended. Instead of forbearing, they, they lash out in anger and they get irritated. Now, if you have people in your church, if you have a church over here that is filled with humility and filled with gentleness and filled with long-suffering and filled with forbearance, and you have a church over here that is the opposite, filled with pride, opinionated people, quick to anger, ready to lash out, the devil with this church has such an easy job. His job is so easy. He barely has to lift his little finger to get that church to be in trouble. All he has to do is just, just his little finger, barely. He just has to prod, prod somebody, just poke them like this. And the whole thing will start unraveling. 
What do I mean by that? I'll tell you. The devil just pokes somebody, just prods them, just stirs them up a little, stirs up a little bit of drama. Somebody feels overlooked. Somebody feels that they've been slighted. Somebody feels like that the elders aren't paying attention to their need. Somebody feels like they did something, but they didn't get the recognition that they deserved. So they just turn up a bit. They, they perceive that they've been taken advantage of. They may not have even been taken advantage of, but they perceive they've been taken advantage of. They perceive that they've not been heard. Now, if somebody over here in this church where there's humility and gentleness and, and lowliness of mind, the devil tries to stir that up and they say, you've been overlooked. They say, well, yeah, sure. I should be overlooked. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Who cares about that? They're lowly minded. You've been slighted. <laughs> I should be slighted. I should be in hell. What do you mean slighted? That doesn't matter. In other words, if you have people that are, that are humble and lowly minded over here, that stuff doesn't even stick. This stuff doesn't even stick. But in this church over here, how dare they? Who do they think they are? I cannot stand this. They burn for recognition. They burn to have people get their own way. They burn to prove themselves that they were right. They're frustrated and they're angry. And then they begin to speak to other people. And egos start to clash. And hateful words start to be spoken. And before you know it, the things that are coming out of people's mouth is not under edification. And then they gather people into cliques so that they can fight against the other clique. And they try to recruit people onto their side. And then all of a sudden, hard feelings happen. Hard feelings start to surge. People start hardening into mouths. And then churches divide. And you know what? I've been asked to come in on some of these church divisions. And when you go in to try to reconcile and you bring people and you ask them how did this thing start it and guess what they don't even remember and couples married couples we know this don't we we get into a fight we start saying words and then we reconcile and we say what were we fighting about and when we go back to the original what we were fighting about we said that was so stupid and the same thing is true in churches but see here's what the devil wants to do he just stirs them up because they haven't been nurturing these things this church hasn't been, they stir, he stirs them up. Then guess what happens? The church divides. And churches have been dividing in the United States of America now for about five years. They divided over COVID. They divided over Republican and Democrat. They divided over uh, left and right. They divided over this and that. They divided over gender. They divided over LGBTQ. They divided over race. They've divided and divided and divided. And what is Satan doing? Satan is loving this because God's name is being dishonored. And the gospel is being stained. The world looks at that and says, what do you have that I don't have? We divide too. You look just like us. You act just like us. You talk just like us. You treat each other just like us. You have nothing to offer us. And then the one place that was supposed to give people hope, the one place where when people walked in, they said, wow, this, this smells like Can the Can Canaan land. This, this, is, this is like the promised land. I walked through this threshold into this place and I'm loved and I'm accepted. Just like Leanne said that woman felt in her Bible study. Uh, 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 Socioeconomic difference didn't mean anything. And Mrs. Pretty, she, she felt welcomed even though she was poor. She was in a new place. She was tasting the new heavens and new earth. She was seeing it lived out before them. And if Satan can crush that, nobody has hope. And that's why, dear ones, dear ones, we need to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying here. 
And we need to be the people who endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Dear friends, I've been here almost 20 years, and this congregation has known unusual peace all of those 20 years. We've had a, a little wrinkle here and there with certain individuals, and they, they get in here, try to stir things up, and then they leave. And they leave for a reason. They leave because they're trying to stir things up, doesn't get any traction. So they go somewhere where they can get more traction. Why have we known such peace? Well, the grace of God, he's long-suffering, he's kind, he's merciful, he's gracious. We should all be in hell, but we're adopted children of him. The outpouring of the Spirit of God. But I also think, too, that as we have sought to mature believers here, to mature the saints so that we would grow in humility and we would grow in gentleness and we would grow in, in long-suffering and, and love for one another and we would grow in forbearance, that it would be a place where the bonds of peace begin so tightly that we feel the joy and pleasure of that and we don't want that disrupted. Dear ones, I just want to close by asking us to do something today. And that is to renew our efforts to live out verse 3. Endeavor, let's endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's keep working at this. We're doing a great job. Let's keep working. So I'd like to conclude this service by having us do something a little bit different. I'm going to be reading out of the New King James. If you have that, you can use that. But I would like us to read in unison these verses. 4, 1 to 6, together as one body of believers. But I would like us to read them as if the apostle was speaking them to us, but also I would like us to read them out loud together so that as almost uh, 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 us saying, I'm doing this, I'm committed to this, I'm, I'm in. This is who we're going to be. Let's read together verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray together. Oh, dear Lord. Oh, dear Lord, the world so desperately needs to see and to have hope. And the hope that they can see is to be found in the church. Oh, dear Lord, help us, we pray. This little church, this, this little body of believers that you have brought together in this community, please, we pray, help us. Help us to be humble lowly. Help us to be gentle. Help us to forbear with one another, to put up with each other, to be long-suffering, to not get angry, for, but, but be long before we get angry. Be long before these things happen. Help us to endeavor 
to work hard, to keep, to guard the unity in this place. Father, help us for your glory, for your glory. I pray that the graced people, the graced saved, graced people that we are, that we will live out this graciousness with one another. And I pray that you will help us, that we would be a light shining to the world. We would be salt in a rotten place. We would be preservative. And we would show the world a future world that is coming so much so that they would desire and hunger and thirst and want to be a part of that world and that they would flee to you for salvation. Oh, Father, work and move. Here we are. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.